Thank you so much for joining us here at Word Baptist Church. I'm Jamar Andrews. I'm the lead pastor, and I get the great privilege of shepherding here. I'm excited that you're joining us today for this sermon. You're about to receive text-driven preaching. My prayer is that God speaks to you through this time as you listen to this message. So enjoy, and God bless. invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7 is where we will spend our time together this morning as we continue our series entitled Unveiled, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And over the last um, several weeks, we have been working our way through the book of Revelation, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, looking at this beautiful book that the Lord has given to us, one that if we were quite honest with ourselves, we don't historically spend a lot of time talking about or having people preach through. And, uh, and so today we will continue our journey. The book of Revelation carries with it a blessing, a promise that as we hear it, read it and heed it, that the Lord uh, will bless our lives. And so today, as we enter into chapter seven, we are in a new territory, a intermission, if you will. You see, the book of Revelation has a specific outline, a detailed way in which it unfolds. In chapter 1, verse 19, it tells us how the book itself is laid out. Uh, Apostle John there hears from the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's supposed to record the things that he had seen. Uh, the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, the uh, majestic, powerful. He was supposed to record the things that are. We see that in chapter 2 and 3. That's the church age, the seven messages to the seven churches. And then he was supposed to record the things that were to come, the future things. And so today in chapter 7, we find ourselves in this third movement, this third section. We have come out of a, a time in the book where there's been intense uh, struggle as the Lamb of God has come into the throne room, the only one worthy to take the book, the one that had the seven seals on it. And he has been able to take that book from the one who sat on the throne, and he is starting to open it by breaking the seals one by one. And you remember as he would break the seals, uh, after each seal, certain things would take place. After the first seal, there was one that was sent out to conquer. When he broke the second seal, war took place, and we see that. Broke the third seal, famine and difficulty on the earth took place. The fourth seal, death and Hades came out. When he broke the fifth seal, there were uh, those who had been slain, martyred. They were underneath the altar. They began to speak out and ask when the Lord was going to bring about his justice for the things that had been done to them. When he broke the sixth seal, it's a beautiful thing that takes place as we see that he is in control of each one of these. The sixth seal, he highlights these great cataclysmic things that come. And in each one of these, the control of the lamb is on full display. The fact that this world, this world history, is not just moving aimlessly, it's not just chaotic for no reason, but that the lamb is in control. It's a beautiful thing. And so we, as we move now, we're going to see that there's an interlude, a pause, a, a breath that's between the sixth and seventh seal. And today, as we look in chapter seven, we're going to see that even in the midst of God's wrath and even in the midst of him bringing justice, there is always his grace and love that's present. And hopefully today, as we take an in-depth look at this, this will cause you to have great encouragement, that even though there are going to be great times of difficulty, and even though there are going to be hardships for humanity, that God is still working and moving and saving lives. You see, the title of the message today is The Shepherd Lamb. Now, that might sound funny to you, to actually have lambs that are actually shepherding people, but that's exactly what the text is going to tell us today. 
We've already ran into some things that are a little bit different when we saw that the lion is also a lamb. And so today we're going to see the fact that the lamb is also a shepherd. You know, when I think about our world today, I believe that I come to the same conclusion that Jesus Christ did when he looked out over the mass of people that they were sheep without a shepherd. That when you look at most people, they go through hardships and difficulties and, and whether it's individual or whether it's collective or whether it's families, that when you look at our world, so many people that you and I know, they are like sheep without a shepherd. They don't have his provision. They don't have his protection. They don't have his direction. They don't have his, his guidance. They don't have his, his, his hope and his help. And so when I think about this, this passage, it's laying out for us the fact that Jesus Christ desires to be the shepherd of every soul. But now when I think about this more practically, it makes me think of a time in my life where I made a pretty bad decision. I remember I was a young man, probably about age of five or six. And I was at, you know, that real spiritual place, Walmart. And I was with a good friend of mine and we were with his brother and his grandmother. And we were sitting in the car and you know how children can be, you know, especially the younger they are, they get real impatient. And I can remember that day, I was tired of sitting in the car. I was tired of waiting on him. His, his brother was trying to find something for his car. And I was like, look, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to play my video game. I'm ready to do what I want to do. And so I began to nag and I began to complain to his grandmother who was in the front seat that he had to keep going back and forth. And his grandmother, you, you know, sometimes you can get frustrated as parents. Anybody ever been frustrated as a parent? Yeah, she was frustrated. She got tired of hearing that mess. And so she said, well, if you can't just, if y'all can't wait here patiently, well, just walk on home then. To which I said, okay, let's do that. So there I am, Walmart on Highland Drive. I get out of the car, tell my friend, let's go, we're walking home. And so we began to take our journey. And I'll never forget this journey, five or six years old, walking from Walmart on Highland. And you might want to know my destination. My destination was 2004 Cedar Heights, right over here, right where we live. And so I had a good little walk to make. And I remember as we began our journey going down Highland and then going left on Caraway, and at first it was an exciting time. Man, I'd never been out by myself, saw things I never saw before. It was great. We came behind the strip mall there on Caraway, and it was great. I had never seen the back of the strip mall. It was just wonderful. It was a great experience. And then we hit, and we got in past the used-to-be Wendy's there, and then we kept on rolling the train tracks. I had never stepped on train tracks before. It was a great experience. We started rolling through campus, and then I got a little bit afraid because I started seeing grown people that I didn't know. And I can remember a distinct time where a man, he began to walk out from a, one of the dorm areas, and we didn't know, and we were afraid, and we hid. And we laid down on the ground like, is he coming, trying to get us? To which he did not try to get us, and we took off running, and then we, we continued to move through campus. We crossed Johnson right by the McDonald's. We went up through the apartments, and we made it safer to our destination. Much to the chagrin of my grandfather, who that's whose house we walked to. He said, where have you been? We've been looking for you. I said, we just, we walked from Walmart. We made it. Why are you upset? Why are everybody mad? We made it. To which I remember my parents coming over there, and it was not a very pleasant experience uh, at all once they found me. <laughs> and as I think about that account, as I think about, that time in my life, I think it reminds me of so much about what our world goes through. You know, people, what starts off as an exciting journey, you get to do what you want to do and you're not being obedient and there's so many things to see and you find these, these things begin as an exciting time. But as this journey and this life continues, whenever you don't have a shepherd, when you don't have someone over you, someone who is leading and guiding, then it becomes fearful and you wonder about the different things that are going to happen to you. And then what really happens is ultimately you're going to arrive at your destination and they're not going to be happy to be able to see you there and you don't really get to stay there. I can remember when I got to my grandfather's house, I thought I was going to get to stay and play the game, which is what I wanted to do intentionally. And I got taken home and I got punishment. As a matter of fact, the game that I wanted to play got taken away from me. And what I find is, is many times we don't understand that God has laid out for us that he wants to be our shepherd. And there's going to be a time that comes that whenever we come and we come into his house, whether or not we get to stay in the things that we actually desire that we're going to get to keep. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see that this shepherd, this one, he desires to lead our life. And there are going to be those who surrender to him. But sadly, there are going to be so many that don't. But I want to keep it positive this morning because I believe our text, our text in chapter 7, we've dealt with a lot of hard things. We've dealt with famine and war and death and all these things. But in chapter 7, 
of the book of Revelation. There's this breath, this moment, almost like all these things have happened, these hard things. And then we get to catch our breath and we get a chance to see that God is still actively working and moving and saving and changing lives. And so as we look to this, I want to remind us of two things that we're going to see. As a matter of fact, there are two groups that we're going to see the Lord work in. He's going to work in Jews and he's going to work in Gentiles. And he's going to do it in a very specific and detailed way. We're going to see this language where he's going to seal them. He's going to take care of them. And if you remember, I've been using Matthew's gospel, chapter 24, as a guide, a guide to how we understand this portion of Revelation. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 24, verses 1 through 14, it lays out for us the different movements, the different things that are going to come to be able to prepare us to know when will the end of time come? When will the coming of Jesus Christ happen? And so we will see that the portion in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 24, 14, is where I want us to look today. We've already looked at 1 through 13, and we've already seen all those other things. But there's another piece that I want you to see in Matthew 24, 14. It says this. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. And so we have here that it's not just going to be deception. It's not going to just be wars, not just going to be famines. It's not just going to be all these cataclysmic events that happen on this earth. But there are some other things that have to take place. And we see that the spread of the gospel to all nations is another trigger for the coming. The end. And we're going to see how exactly does this happen? What exactly is our role as a church? What's going to happen in human history? How is this gospel going to spread? What is God going to do? And so I'm going to submit to you that chapter 6 through chapter 19 of the book of Revelation encompass a time that we know as the seven years of tribulation. And so we're getting an opportunity to pull the veil back and we're getting an opportunity to see what that time frame will look like. Our passage this morning breaks down into three movements. Let me just give those to you on the front end. Verses one through eight, we're going to see that Jesus seals chosen Jews before judgment. The second movement, Jesus saves Gentiles during judgment. And lastly, verses 13 through 17, Jesus, he satisfies tribulation saints. And I hope you've had an opportunity to find Revelation chapter seven. And I also hope you came to have a good time this morning because we're getting ready to. But again, reading in our first movement. Verses one through eight. Revelation seven, one says this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Nathan, 12,000. From the tribe of Nasa, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Let's see our first movement here. That Jesus, he seals chosen Jews. Now, from the outset of this particular passage, we've got to deal with a few things because the text is using some very symbolic, but also, I believe, literal language for us. And so we have to understand how 
are we to recognize this interlude? What, what is the reasoning for this? And what is God communicating to us by taking a break in between the seals? We have six, one to go, and then you take a break. We, we are in suspense. We want to know what's the last seal going to be. In the midst of this, we have a whole chapter that deals with some events. The first thing that we should check out in verse one is that we have four angels and you're going to want to remember that because we're going to be introduced back to these in chapter eight when we get there. But just remember four angels and they were standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, I'm just going to say this because I have to. I know and I don't know if we got any flat earthers in here, but can I just tell you, that's not what this passage is dealing with here. But I know if we got any flat earthers, they're like, see, I told you right here. It's flat. That's what had, why it has corners. Right. It says from the four corners of the earth. This is actually language that's used here to to talk about the encompassing nature of, of this judgment that is to come, that there are, that are the judgment that's going to happen is going to encompass the entire world. That's a phrase that we use the four corners. It's the same language that we use when we think about the four directions, right? The four directions that we have It's to say that in every place, that's the language that's used here. We, when you look at a compass, we have four principal directions that we highlight. And so he's just talking about all these different directions. Don't, don't let this fool you because, you know, there'll be some people that'll come and say, I told you it was flat and the Bible says it is. And you look at them and say, what kind of, what'd you have in your taco last night? But when we look at this, he's talking about the fact that this judgment that is a worldwide judgment is going to be held back for a time. And he says the four winds. This is another way of saying when we look at this winds has to do with judgment. We see this in the Old and New Testament that this this has to do with judgment. The winds have to do with judgment. So there's a time in which the judgment was going to be held back for a moment until they would be able to seal. And these winds, the judgments, notice it says that it's not going to happen on the earth or on the sea or on the trees. That's what it says to us in verse one. And we use this language even today, right? Does, I'm just going to ask a quick question. Anybody ever use the phrase sunset? Anybody ever say, I love a sunset. It's so romantic, right? So just can I ask you a quick question? Is the sun actually setting? No. Is it moving? Is the sun itself moving? Was it standing and then it's sitting? Is that what's happening? No. It's this phrase is, we use these all the time. And so it's, it's, very, it's very important that we understand what the language is trying to convey to us. And the overarching message that it's conveying to us is that in the midst of this global judgment, the wrath of the lamb, there's going to be a moment in time in which God allows that to cease for a moment to be able to seal those who are going to be in the next round of judgments. That's what we're talking about here in verse one. How do you know that? Well, that's what it says in. Verse two, and I saw another angel. Notice it says ascending from the rising of the sun. That's the east. Sun rising in the east. He's ascending, coming from the east. Notice this, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Now, when we see this, this understanding, this one that's coming out, he is letting them know. He's saying, hold up, wait, time out. He says he cried out. And he says, don't harm the earth or the sea, verse three, or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of our God on their foreheads. So he says, hold up. Don't do anything until we have sealed them. Now, this idea of being sealed is, is very important to us and for us. This idea, it means to when you seal something, two pieces to this ownership, ownership and security to seal means ownership. And security, or another way of saying that is protection. If you're taking notes, I just want you to jot down Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. We're going to look at this together. But this idea of sealing, if you remember the book that was in the hand of him who sat on the throne, it had how many seals on it? Seven, right? And the, the beautiful thing about this is nobody was able to open it, to look in it, to be able to do the seals. Only the one who had the authority to do it was able to do this. And so this idea of sealing is a very common thing where whenever a message was going to be sealed, sent from a king or from individuals who were making transactions, they would roll it up, put wax on it, take their ring, and they would seal it up, showing that it belonged to a certain individual and that was sent to a certain individual. And so it's denoting ownership. And so whenever he says that these bond servants in the midst of the tribulation and the difficulties, they're going to be sealed. It means that it's number one, it's showing that they belong to the Lord. It's that they are his bond servants. 
But then secondly, though, we see that this thing has to do with protection. It, it happens even for us to, to, to us as believers today. So let's just look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. This gives us a beautiful picture. It says, in him, talking about Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, y'all ready for it? What does it say? You were sealed in, the, in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view to redemption of God's own, ready for it? Possession, y'all say it with me, ownership to the praise of his glory. So when, he, when we talk about this ceiling, a lot of times we, we look at this idea of forehead and we think about the market of beasts and all these other things. And like, so does that mean like I'm going to have tattooed like Jesus across my forehead or what is that, what is that going to look like? We, we, we misunderstand what's actually being communicated here. That these individuals in the midst of this great time of tribulation and hardship and difficulty, they are going to be protected and they are going to belong to the Lord. The same way as in our time, we are protected and we belong to the Lord. We, just by, by show of hands, we got any guys that love to work with their hands, woodworking, those kind of things. Anybody? I see that hand right there. Okay, fantastic. You know, sometimes we got somebody like, I don't even know what a screwdriver is. I can't even tell the difference between a Phillips head and a flathead. I don't even know, right? But whenever you begin to work with wood, one of the things that you will do once you once you lay the floor or those things is you will seal the wood. You seal the wood. Sometimes you stain it and then you seal it. And when you seal it, it's designed to protect it from water, from different things that the, the wear and tear that happens. And so what the Lord does for his servants here is just the same thing as we would do to wood when he seals it, just like we seal wood. It's designed to protect it from the elements, from the things that are going to happen, the things that want to try to damage it, the things that want to try to harm it. And so what he does in this passage, these bond servants, he is sealing them for protection. But then there's also another piece to this. I, I know we're getting in the holiday season. And, you know, sometimes when you want to buy something, you don't have all the money up front. You can put it on, what do they call it? Layaway. All right, we got any layaway folk in here? Can I just tell you, that's how our brother got the majority of his toys. Throw that thing on layaway. And as the allowance come in, as I mow the yard, as I take out the trash, then I can buy what I want. And so this idea of, of layaway, this pledge, this, this spirit being a, a pledge promising them of greater things to come, that as these things continue to mount up and to add up, that God is going to come through on his promise. When we see this, this idea of sealing, see, this was to protect them. It was protect them because they were getting ready to go through what we were going to see in chapters eight and nine when we see the trumpet judgments. And then as we get ready to move into the bold judgments, these individuals were going to be going through these things. Now, can I just tell you, this is not the first time we've heard about this sealing on the forehead. If you're taking notes, I just want you to jot down Ezekiel chapter nine. And we're going to just look at it briefly. We're going to start in verse one and I'm just going to read it to you. And then everything is a bit technical at first, but it's going to open up for us. Just hang with me. Ezekiel nine says this. Nine one says this. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, draw near, O execution of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. So we, we got a scene here. That, an, that a judgment is getting ready to come. Executioner, weapons in hand, says, Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each, right, each with a shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed with linen, with writing, writing case on his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of the Lord of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshing floor of the temple. And he called to the men clothed in linen, to the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the written case. Verse four, you ready for it? The Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, Y'all say it with me and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But 
to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike down, strike. Not to let your eyes have pity on them or to spare them. Utterly slay old, young men, maidens, little children and women. But do not touch any man who is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, defile the temple and fill its courts with the slain. Go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. Now, when we see this, this is startling language to us many times, because when we read this New Testament in, in, in Revelation, we see this. We understand that this idea of marking is a setting apart before judgment comes. This is a this is a clear picture. We see it in the Old Testament. It's not the first time in Ezekiel we see it. We see it now in Revelation where we see that for folks who were committing idolatry, folks who had turned their back on God, folks who were not willing to surrender, to submit, and to worship. I know it's quiet in here this morning. We do not like to hear and to talk about the judgment piece of this thing. But it is a reality, and we see that he's letting us know that before the judgment falls, that God, he will have those who will seal, who he will protect, and who will be his own. And then we, as our text moves, we see that we hear about who these individuals are. And we, we get the number. And you catch what it says in verse 4, the Jehovah Witnesses. Boy, did you catch it? That's, that's who it is, right? That's what they'll tell you when they come knock on your door. The 144,000, that's what they'll tell you. He says in verse four, I heard the number of those who were sealed. One hundred and forty four thousand sealed from every tribe of sons of Israel. Now, let me just tell you, there are a lot of individuals. There are a lot of different renderings of this. So let me just give these to you on the front end and then we'll, we'll apply this thing and make it personal. But what will happen in your day and in my day, people will try to say that that one, they know who the hundred and forty four thousand are. Jehovah's Witness, they'll knock on your door and you'll ask them. That's the Jehovah's Witness, 144,000. But they're not the only group. Seven-day Adventists as well. Uh, they're not the only group. You can just look throughout history where people have already tried to identify themselves as the 144,000. But can I just tell you, what does the Bible say? Because that's the, very, that's the question you should always ask yourself. What does the Bible say about these individuals? Well, it says that there are 144,000 and they are sealed from where? Tri every tribe of the sons of who? Israel. We're not talking about Gentiles here. And can I just tell you, whenever a Jehovah's Witness, this is just practical for a minute. Whenever they come and they knock on your door, or you see them at a gas station, they want to come and give you some of their publication. What I always ask them and say, you're a Jehovah's Witness. And they'll say, yes, I'll say, great. I have never met one of you before. I have never met one before. There's only 144,000 in the whole world. I have never met one. And so you're a Jehovah's Witness. And you know what they normally say? No, I'm not. I'm an outer sheep because that's the next category. Whenever you are not 144,000 of a Jehovah's Witness, you are what they call an outer sheep, meaning you don't have a hope to go to heaven. The person that's standing at your door, handing you that, that publication at the gas station, in their minds, they have no hope to actually go to heaven. How sad is that? They only believe that only 144,000 people are going to actually be able to go to heaven like the heaven where God is. I can just I wish y'all could see everybody's face in here right now. Y'all just shocked, just blue minds blown just now. OK. And so naturally what it should do, hopefully what this would do is it one, it'll cause us to not slam the door on them or act like we don't know that they at the door or act like we don't like them or whatever it is. And will cause us to have a heart for them to know that they have been deceived. They have been deceived because they believe that only 144,000 people are actually going to get to go to heaven. And so they don't have any hope of that. They believe that they're going to inherit the earth. They're going to be down here on earth. That's what they think after Armageddon and all those other things. I'm just trying to preach to you, keep, keep you, you know, in line so you'll know. So then one of the things I, I love to do whenever they come and they come to knock on my door or I see them, I'll say, OK, so the 144,000, you're not a Jehovah's Witness. No, I'm an outer sheep. I said, okay, well, let's just talk about the, the 144,000 then. So are these 144,000, can these be like anybody, men or women or married to have children? And you know what they're going to tell you when you ask them that question? They're going to say, yeah, they can be men, women, married, 
Yeah. I was like, oh, really? Well, you know, I was reading the other day. Uh, and uh, you, got your new, you got your New World Translation there because they have their own translation of the Bible. I said, could you turn with me to Revelation chapter 14 real quick? So let's just look at that real quick together because I'm trying to help you all know what to do when they come knock on your door. So let's just look at it real quick. Revelation 14, 1 through 5, because the identity of the 144,000 are given. Revelation 14, 1 through 5, it's going to come on the screen here, and we're going to look at it together. It's, it's a beautiful thing. You ready for it? It says, then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him, who was with him? 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. You ready for it? And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of the harpers playing on their harps. I love it right here. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and, before, and the elders. And no one could learn the song except who? The 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones we're talking about now, right? Now, look at this. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women. For they kept themselves what? Chase. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men. Huh. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They've been purchased from among men as the first fruits of God and to the lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So I look at them and say, so you were telling me that they could be men and women? And they could be married? And they could have kids? But what the Bible, what does the Bible say about these individuals? They are chaste, correct? It means they are virgins. They are males. It's very specific who he's talking about here. And so whenever they come knock on your door, I need you to do me a favor. And you just say, man, I've been hearing about the one. Are you one of 144,000? Because I ain't never met one before. This is awesome. Number one. Number two, it's very important that we recognize that the Bible already gives us the identity. And so if the organization that you follow is telling you that these people are married people, they, they can have children. But the Bible, the, the very book you hold in your hand, even their New World Translation says that they are virgin males. We have a problem. Can we all agree to that? So as we look to this, it's important to know. But let's just for a minute speak to the identity and then we'll move on through. Because there's some interesting things here. We see that God, what he does in this interlude is he is telling us how in the world Matthew 24, 14 is going to be fulfilled. How in the world is this gospel message going to move throughout all the earth? If the church has been raptured, we are with God. If there's great cataclysmic events and calamities and all these hardships. How in the world is the gospel message going to continue to be moved? Can I tell you how it's going to continue to be moved? By these 144,000 individuals that have been sealed and saved and protected by the Lamb. Here in just a minute, we're going to see the fruits of their ministry. But we see when we look at this, we get all these tribes and you get all these names. And I'm just going to tell you some things because of sake of time that I want you to do. These tribes, you might wonder, where in the world do these names come from? How do we get to these names? Well, in Genesis chapter 30, you'll see where these tribes come from. I'm just going to make it real brief, give you a little bit of history. There was a brother by the name of Jacob. You might know him as Israel, okay? Jacob had a whole lot of drama going on, okay? Jacob loved a girl named Rachel. He worked for seven years for Rachel, but on his, on his honeymoon night after he woke up, guess who was beside him? Her sister, Leah, okay? Father-in-law had got him. You hear what I'm trying to tell you? You want to talk about family drama. You don't have to watch any shows, any soap operas, any Netflix series. Just read your Bible. You hear what I'm trying to tell you? It's more drama than Broadway inside the sign. And so he wakes up, Leah beside him. Uh-oh, that ain't who I thought I was getting, okay? And then father-in-law makes a deal. It's kind of messed up. Hey, if you work seven more years, I'll give you Rachel. How about that? That sound good? So he works another seven years and gets Rachel. So what you're going to have is now you have Two sisters, you got Jacob, two sisters, they have handmaids, and Jacob is sleeping with all of them and having kids by all of them. I'm just keeping the real up in here, okay? And out of all these, 14, 14 come out of all of these. How many? 14, okay? And so whenever you start looking at the tribes, these 14, that's where the tribes come from, from Jacob, his relations with 
Leah and Rachel, and then they had two handmaidens of servants that every once in a while he would get with them too, okay? And so that's where all this comes from. And so when you look at this, when you look at this, that's where these names are coming from. But there's some interesting things in Revelation. There's some names that are very interesting that I think we should understand. About 29 times throughout scriptures, you see a list of the tribes. But this list is very unique, and it's unique for these reasons. If you're taking notes, it's unique because, number one, it puts Judah first. Judah was not the oldest. It puts Judah first. And I believe the reason why it puts Judah first is because that is the line, the tribe, that the Messiah comes through. He's the, the, the top, the first, the king, the Messiah comes through Judah. That's where Jesus, he was a, he was a line from the tribe of Judah. We also see another thing that's, that's different here. You see the fact that it doesn't have Dan in here. Dan was one of the sons. When you look in Genesis 30, you're going to see Brother Dan, okay? Brother Dan, we didn't read Brother Dan in here, right? What happened to Brother Dan? Well, do me a favor. Read, read Deuteronomy 29, and what you're going to find out from, about Brother Dan is that Dan's tribe, they brought in idolatry. They were brought in and taken over by idolatrous practices, and in Deuteronomy 29, it says that the individual or the people or the tribe that goes after this, I will blot their name out. And that's what happens today. When you read, just get you some Deuteronomy. I'll tell you that Old Testament to preach now. But then you also see, man, What's this Joseph stuff? You'll see in verse 8, it's got Joseph in here, the tribe of Joseph. That seems odd, the tribe of Joseph. Most of the time, it's, it's two names for Joseph. Joseph, you remember, Joseph was in Egypt. While Joseph was in Egypt as a Jew, guess what? He got an Egyptian bride. Ain't that something? Interracial relationships. Hallelujah. They all over the place, okay? And in this, he has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. You see, you see one son, Manasseh, you see his name in there. But what about Ephraim? You know what happened to Ephraim? You know what? He's actually in there because Joseph is in there. When you say Joseph, you get them both. But, but, but when you look at this issue that, that Ephraim is left out, he also was responsible for idolatry. And whenever the kingdom was split, whenever he goes up, he engages in the same types of idolatry as Dan does. And so it's amazing to me when you look at this, the idolatry that happens. What happens, how, how, how they're, they're not listed in here but they still have a hope. You see, in Ezekiel 48, what you'll find is, is during the millennium that God still gives them a share in the land because he's a God that also is redemptive and he works even when we mess up. It's an amazing thing. But let me just apply this. Y'all looking at me like, how in the world are you going to bring this all together? What I want you to see is that the same spirit that seals us today is the same one that's going to be sealing and protecting and guiding and, to, and directing his people, even in the midst of some of the greatest tribulation and the greatest hardship and difficulty. And you and I, when we begin to think about this world and we think, what's going to happen? What's going to happen whenever the church is brought out? How in the world is God going to continue to work and move? Can I tell you, we see it right here that he has always had a remnant and he will always have a remnant. You hear me? He's going to always have a witness and a testimony to preach and teach the gospel. But now some of you here, you might not be a believer yet. Can I just encourage you? Do not wait. You, you don't want to experience this. You, you don't want to have to go through this because we're going to see the fruit of their ministry. You remember back when he opened the fifth seal, the Lord said, listen, there's some more people that's got to be martyred because of my name, because of what I am. They're going to be preaching and you're going to see that many people, probably the greatest revival is going to happen during the midst of the tribulation. And I believe it's because God's going to use these, these 144,000 on fire. Can I just say it like this? The Apostle Paul, imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls. Imagine that for a minute. How much could get done in, the, in this time? And we see that he's going to be still showing himself strong. The second movement, this is where it gets a little bit more practical for us, is verses 9 through 12. We see, I believe, the result of their ministry. In verse 9 it says this, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude. How many? A great multitude which no one could count. How many? From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, 
Amen. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, when we see this, we're going to see that out of this trial, out of this hardship, out of these difficulties, that that Gentiles will be saved during this time of judgment, that during the time of the great tribulation, you're going to sit here in a minute, during the time of the great tribulation, that there's going to be a multitude that comes out of that. There's a scene shift. When we look in our first movement, we see that we're on earth. In this next movement, the scene shifts back to heaven, and we see that we should be shocked. You know, sometimes when you hear preachers talk, sometimes when you hear Christians talk, sometimes when we think about it, you know, we talk as if there's not going to be very many people in heaven. You know, we, we talk that way. Many times we talk that way. And can I just tell you, but what does the Bible say? Well, let's just look at it. In verse 9, it says this, after these things, I looked and behold, what a great multitude. Did y'all catch it? A great multitude says, which no one could count. This fascinates me. I want you to think of some of the largest cities that you've ever been to in the world. We can count them people, the billions and the millions. We can count them. But John, when he's in heaven, he's like, look, let me just tell you, I ain't even waste my time. It's a great multitude, okay, which no, nobody could count. Now, when we look at this, what should shock you? There are two things that should shock you, the volume and the type. What type of people are in heaven? What kind of people are in heaven? Did you read it? Did you read it? From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. And what are they doing? Standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches. Their palm branches were in their hands. Now, when you hear this, I don't know if this excites you or not, but it excites me. That when we look at out, out of that great tribulation, out of that difficulty, out of the hardships, out of all those things that God, there's this multitude that's going to come and nobody could count it. That when we look at this, we see that, that there's a global focus here. That God, that, that Jesus in Mark 16, 15, let's just look at it together. Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Did you catch that? Now, one thing I love about this is that this is Jesus. He's given us the mandate as a church. That's what we do. We go and we preach the gospel to all creation, go to all the world. This is what I love. Listen, when you connect to Christ and you connect to his mission, you connect to the gospel, you are connecting to a mission that will ultimately be fulfilled. You will be on the winning team. That if you take your life and you are willing to sink it down into the purpose of proclaiming the gospel, you will forever be a winner. That's exactly what I see every time I see this that it's worth it, that it's worth committing to Christ, it's worth committing to the gospel, even if that calls you to move to a place that is not your home, to learn a language that is not your heart language. It is worth it. And I want you to catch it. This global movement, that this is not, heaven is not a segregated place. Not only does heaven not have ghettos, but it also is not segregated, okay? It's not segregated. There's no prejudice. There's no racism. There's no segregation there. So, you know, some people in our day, I'm just going to hit this because I just I might as well go and hit it now. They will get upset because they will say, you know what? People use the Bible and they use it to promote racism and they do all these other things. And all I have to say to you is that there are people that have misused the Bible to try to promote some sort of classism or racism or some hierarchy in time. But can I just tell you, if you would read the book, the book is very clear. The book is very clear about God's intention to have all of us together, all of us in heaven together. Did you? I didn't write this. Let me just read it again. There's a multitude that no one could count. From where? Every nation. What kind of tribes are there? All of them. And the people's there too. What, what languages? What about languages? All of them are there as well. Can you imagine this? And can I just tell you, This is not just God's plan for heaven. This has always been his plan. It has always been his plan. Y'all don't look like y'all believe me. Let me just read something to you real quick. In the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, all right? So everybody, when when we study the book of Exodus, 
and we look at the plagues and we look at all these things. Most of us look at that and we say that God, he did that because he needed to get the Jews out of Egypt. Right. And most of the time when we think about that, we think it's just the Jews. That's, it's just the Jews that he did this for to get them up out of Egypt. Can I just tell you, you ain't read your Bible. If that's what you believe, that it was only for the Jews. Because look at what well, look at what it says in chapter 12, verse 38. What kind of multitude came out of Egypt? A. Did y'all see that? Can, did y'all hear what I did? Did y'all see? Do you see this? A mixed multitude also went up with them. Did you catch it? Along with the flocks and the herds and a very large number of livestock. If you keep on reading it, talk about how many the men, folks, that we didn't even count the children. We had time to count all the babies that came up. But what type of multitude went up? A mixed multitude. That God, that this has always been his heart, always been the movement. He's a missionary God. And even on earth, he has designed it that people from every tribe, nation, tongue, background will be able to come together and find their ultimate purpose and identity in him. That's what it is. And so that's the way it's going to be in heaven. That's the way he designed for it to be here on earth. Now, I know that we don't get to experience that on a regular basis because it's a thing called sin. But I want you to catch it. God has not changed his mind. And I don't care what anybody tries to tell you, whether it's a Hebrew Israelite that tries to tell you that only black folks can be in, the, in heaven and only black folks are Israel or, or if it's white supremacist groups, they try to tell you that. And everything in between, the Bible has clearly spoken to God's plan and vision for humanity. Y'all still in here? Okay. I know some of you are like, you know, Jamal, I believe this already. But the problem is, is you, whenever you believe it, can you set it down in Scripture? So that way, whenever somebody comes to you and they try to tell you all this, who shot John, they try to lie to you, you can turn right over to Revelation chapter 5, and you can look at it in verse 10 and say, listen, the kingdom, listen, from every tribe, nation, and tongue, can you turn over to Revelation 7, right here where we are, every, every people, language, and tribe. He says it over and over. Can I tell you, this is not the last time he's going to say it. So whenever we look at this, we understand what, what about the people? Let me just hit this real quick because this gets me. If y'all thought I was fired up about the, the, the people that are there, notice what happens when these individuals get here. Notice, notice what happens. It says about them, they're clothed in white robes and they have palm, palm branches in their hand, clothed in white robes and palm branches. And they were, they were standing before the lamb. They were clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hand. This idea of standing has to do with position. They were in a position of acceptance and honor. They were standing before the lamb. They were standing before. I didn't write it. That's what it says. They were standing before the throne. That means that they had, they had honor and they were accepted. They were accepted in. If you get a chance to be entertained by the king, if you get an audience with the king, if you get a presence before the throne, that is a picture of acceptance here. Now, there's going to come a time where it's a picture of judgment. That's not this one. Okay. This is a, this is a picture of acceptance that they have been brought before the throne. The picture of acceptance. But then it says that they had white robes. This is the idea of they were clothed in victory or salvation, that, that these same ones, even though they come at a different time than the church, they come at a different time, they go through the tribulation and they go through all these difficulties. He's given out the same thing. He's given a white robe. He's given them victory. But there's another piece that we didn't have when we saw the church earlier. It says, what do they have in their hands? Palm branches, right? Palm branches. These palm branches are a picture of joy, of celebration, and of praise. Joy, celebration, praise. And they have a common confession. They have a common confession. It says this, verse 10, and they cry out. And who cries? They cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They have a common confession, and that confession has to do with the deliverance that God gives. Now, can I just tell you, verse 11 gets me fired up every time I read it. I'm gonna, here we go. You ready for it? And all the angels. Just a quick question. How many angels? All the angels were standing around the throne. Now, catch this, the order now. The angels were around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor, power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, I love the angels here. I love the angels because, listen, if you ever want to know which direction you need to be going and worship or what's going to happen, just follow the angels. They always let you know, right? And it says that they were all, that all of them, all the angels, they were standing around the throne, and they were celebrating, they were excited. 
But how many of you know that even today we can make the angels get excited? How many, how many of you know that we can make the angels get fired up in heaven? How many of y'all know that? Look, if you're taking those, just jot down Luke chapter 15, verse 10. One of my favorite passages in all the scripture says this. Jesus talking about the woman who had lost a coin and found a coin and got excited about it. He says this, in the same way, I tell you, there is what? Joy in the presence of the angels of God over, say it with me. You want to make the angels get excited? You want to make them jump? You want to make them get fired up? Whenever a sinner repents, whenever a sinner who is separated from God has, has no hope, is, 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 is destined to be separated in a place called hell, whenever that individual, when their lives turn, what does it say? There's joy in the presence of the angels over how many sinners? So can I just tell you, when they see all this multitude, they don't, they lose the name. Like, ah! That's all I can just see here. They like, we can't count all these folks. What is going on? So that, then you see they lead the worship. You know, every time I see it, it just makes me think. You know, God, we, we can be a part of that. We can make sure we can share the gospel. We can see people saved. That way all the time. Them boy, they just, just like I tell you, he in the kingdom, baby. Every time. Every time one crosses the goal line, he celebrates. You know, one of the things we also learn from these angels, and then we'll move to our last point, is worship. It's a, it's a position. It's a posture. You notice they fall down, but it's also about what we say to God and what we say about him. And I want you to notice the things that they say, because sometimes in our world, when it comes to prayer and praise and talking to God and the things we need to do and how we need to, sometimes we don't know what, what we need to do. But can I tell you, if you look, if you look in verse 12, they give us a great roadmap, says blessings, blessings that has to do with praise. When he says glory, that has to do with bestowing the honor that is due. Wisdom, that's because of his divine knowledge. Thanksgiving, this is where we get our word communion from, that we can come to and have a relationship that's so intimate. The word that's used there for Thanksgiving is the word we get our English word communion. You see this word honor. It's a beautiful thing whenever we display honor or glory. It means we draw attention to. God, power, and might, he says to our God forever and ever. Amen. You know, let me just apply it, and then I want to go to our last point to close out, is that we need to make sure that we understand that this great multitude, they come, they come from the great tribulation. We're going to see that in, 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 in greater language here. But this should encourage us to continue to share the gospel, to continue to pray, to continue to pray, to continue to go, to continue to share, to know that God, he's going to fulfill it. And he has called us to see our part. Mark 16, 15. Not to get caught up in this American dream or not to get caught up in all things that we can amass on this planet, on this earth, but to keep our vision heavenly and to utilize the things that he has given us, even though we might be blessed in terms of materially or whatever else we want to call it in our world, to use those things for his glory. The last thing I want us to see, and this is my closing point, is that Jesus, he satisfies the tribulation saints, those who come out. I want you to look at me in verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? Boy, that's a good question. Who asked that question? One of the elders. Who did he ask that question to? John. How do I know that? Verse 14, John said, I said to him, my Lord, you know. Contemporary, quit playing. You know. And he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That sounds funny. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. 
they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This multitude, where did they come from? The great tribulation. They were saved through their faith in Jesus Christ through the great tribulation. They, they kept the confession. They were willing to believe in it. The text tells us very clearly that they did this because they, were, they, were, they washed their robes. They made them white in the blood of the lamb. That's a, a phrase to say that the redemptive work that Christ accomplished on the cross, the blood that he shed, their lives were cleansed by that work. Because when you think about it, in our day, when we think about cleansing and those things, when you dip a garment in blood, most time it doesn't come out white, correct? That's not what happens. It, it comes out red. It comes out, you know, dark red, almost brown colored, right? And so what in the world is this language? This language he's trying to communicate to us is that these individuals, during the midst of the Great Tribulation, they were not willing to succumb to the, the, the attack of the enemy, the false teaching, the deception. And these individuals, I believe these individuals, I'm making a strong statement here, these 144,000, as they proclaim the gospel, they were willing to believe it and to entrust it and to allow that cleansing flow of Jesus Christ's blood to cleanse and to transform them. But guess what? They still died because he already said after the fifth seal that there are going to be many more that have got to come. So where are you getting all this from, preacher? Well, let's just, let's just work this thing out. Because when I see this idea of wash, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 comes to my mind. Isaiah 1, 18. Isaiah 1, 18 says this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Now, that's a beautiful construction in and of itself. How does he say it? Come now, let what? Us reason together, says the Lord. If you're looking for passages that highlight the Trinity, I'm just giving you one right here. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. The process of this happening, we all know it, that Jesus Christ, he had to lay his life down, sacrifice his life. He had to allow his blood to flow so that way we could have cleansing or forgiveness of sins. How does that work? Well, let's just look at it. Hebrews 9.22. Hebrews 9.22 lays this passage out for us. It'll come on the screen. It says this, and according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without Shedding of blood, what happens? There is no forgiveness. So whenever you see this, Jesus Christ laying down his life, what has to happen here is that you and I, we deserve to die. We, we are the ones that deserve the sin and the, the punishment and the shame. But what Jesus does is he becomes sin on our behalf. And so he stands in our place, the place on the cross. And so that blood that he shed now can be brought in now. It can be deposited into our account. Our sin goes to his account, his righteousness and and. and a lot of other things like his perfection and holiness and grace and goodness, all that comes to our account. Now that's the movement. That, that's the movement. So thus, this idea of being cleansed, this idea of being washed, that, that's what happened to them. That They were willing to surrender and to, to lay their life down. And there before him, there, the blood has cleansed them. I just got a question for you. What can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, as we look to this, we see that they're a beautiful picture. But not only do we see the redemptive part of, of Christ, the lamb, but I want you to see the shepherding part. Because it says about them that, listen, they, they, they are before the throne and they serve him day and night. They get brought into his presence. They serve him day and night. Their, their lives were soiled. But their garments were made clean, washed white. This is why works cannot get you there. This is why no other religious system can get you there. No other belief system, no other things, because it requires the sacrifice of Christ. Did you catch our shepherd? It says about what he does. It says that he's going to spread his tabernacle over them. This is a beautiful picture. It talks about his presence, that he's, he's going to spread his presence out over him. This should take our minds to Exodus whenever a cloud in the day and fire by night continue to move with the people. His presence is going to be there. 
He says they will hunger no longer. They will thirst. They will not have any thirst anymore. For the lamb in the center will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. You see, whenever we, we come to this, we look at our great shepherd. And he's going to continue to be the great shepherd. And he's going to allow these individuals to come. And I just jot down this way to worship him, to be in his presence. They will no longer be tormented. They will no longer be tortured. They will no longer be, have a sense of being forsaken. But they will experience his protection and his provision. And as I close this morning, I want to close with a very familiar passage. As I talk about our shepherd king, you see, the thing about Jesus Christ is he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And whenever I look at this, this room, I, I wonder how, how many of you are like a sheep without a shepherd? How, how many of you are trying to just go through life doing it your own way and understanding that all this time he's desired for you to come and to be a part of his fault? And I just want to read you a passage out of the book of Psalms, Psalm 23. And I just want you to think about this, and I want you to just understand says this, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me. How long? All the days of my life. You ready for it? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, the only way you get to experience those beautiful things like his presence and his provision of the table and the, and the enemies and all those, the only, only way you get to experience that is that he has to be your shepherd. You got to make it personal. Is the Lord your shepherd today? Have you been willing to surrender your life to him? And then willing to trust him. We're going to go into a time of reflection and prayer where I believe the Lord has shown us that he's going to be working. He's going to be working for a long time. But the question is, 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 is he your shepherd? Have you been willing to surrender your life to him right now? We're going to take the Lord's Supper. I can't think of a better thing to do after we talked about the blood of the lamb, the fact that he's laid his life down and that's how we can be made right. And so let's take a time to pray. Will you pray with me? And then we'll have a time of reflection. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And God, as we go into this time of reflection and prayer, I just pray if there's anyone here, they've never given their life to you. The Lord Jesus, they would surrender. They would call out to you and say, Lord Jesus, save me, take my life, change me. Use me for your glory. That God, we would understand that, Lord, you Give us this interlude to let us know that, Lord, you are working now and you will continue to work even in the midst of great difficulty and hardship that's going to hit this planet. That, Lord, you will continually be saving and redeeming and calling. So, God, as we go into this time of reflection and prayer, Lord, we want to make sure that we come before you in the way that's honorable. Not holding on to any sin or any grudges or any unforgiveness, God, or any pet sins, any things that's easy for us to stumble into. So God, we thank you. We thank you for laying your life down. We thank you for your work, the cross, the provision. And Lord, as we go into this time of remembrance that Lord Jesus we would understand the cost the price of what you pay 
And Lord, we would live our lives to proclaim it. That, Lord, we wouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. But, Lord, that the gospel would not only be what saves us, but, Lord, what sustains us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, those of us who have surrendered our lives to you. That, Lord, we would, we would remember what we have in you, that, Lord, you have sealed us. That means you own us and you take care of us. And I know that, Lord, in this life we have tribulation and trouble. But, Lord, I pray that whatever is on our hearts and minds at this time, Lord, that we feel like, Lord, we, we have not experienced from you or the questions that we have or the hardships that we go through. Lord, I pray we would filter all those things through the fact that, Lord, you are our shepherd. And, Lord, we will continue to look to you as you guide us. Lord, as we go into this time of remembrance, Lord, I pray you'd have your way. And then, Lord, you would change us. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. I hope God spoke to you during the message today. We want to know about it. You can fill out a connection card at wordbaptist.com slash connection card. We want to help you through any spiritual questions you may have while you're on this journey. You see, we believe that the first step is for a person to give their life to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear that the greatest need that humanity has is to be saved. And that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. If you will agree with God that you need him for the forgiveness of your sins and you will turn to him in repentance and believe in him, uh, you will be saved. The Bible says that you do this by one believing that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead and that you believe that his payment is sufficient for you, that you will call out to him as Lord and Savior. He will save you. If you're listening to the service and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come and be our guest during a time of worship. We have multiple services. We would love to meet you personally and have you here for worship. You can check us out at wordbaptist.com for service time. If you've missed any sermons, they're all archived there online, so you can go back and watch them. You can connect with us on social media at Word Baptist. If you would like to invest in the ministry and continue the spread of the gospel, you can give online at wordbaptist.com give. I'm so grateful that you've joined us today, and I hope you've learned something that you can apply to your life, and we hope to see you again next time right here at Word Baptist Church.